Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 1st, we are studying Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We'll get to spend a lot of time with Isaiah during the season of Advent. We get to know him pretty well during our series. Today's text provides a wonderful introduction to the prophet many have called the fifth evangelist. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dustin Beck. Pastor Beck serves at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Pastor Beck, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good morning, Pastor Apple. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Fantastic. Glad to have you with us this yes, morning. Yes, sir. So we're meeting Isaiah today, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. As we get started into this part of Advent with the Prophets, tell us a little bit about Isaiah. What do we know about him as a man, as a prophet? What do we need to know? Sure. Yeah, so Isaiah uh, conducts his ministry mostly uh, in the southern kingdom. Uh, He is uh, in Judah, uh, in Jerusalem around there. Uh, One of the more pivotal points in Isaiah's gospel, or uh, Isaiah's gospel, uh, Isaiah's prophecy. We'll come back to that. (laughs) We'll come back to that. Uh, One of the more pivotal moments is uh, actually in chapter 6, uh, it's a little strange that Isaiah's calling is after a few of his prophecies. But in Isaiah 6, uh, we actually see that he's serving in the temple, right? And then sort of the veneer is peeled back, and all of a sudden he's sitting in the throne room of uh, the Lord himself, uh, of which the the earthly temple is just a um, sort of a type, a foil. Um, and so we see that he is of uh, likely a priestly class. We see that Isaiah does have some uh, background or some reason uh, to already be there in the temple. And then, yeah, he's called to be a prophet of God. He's called and his uh, his tongue is made pure and he is set aside to be the one uh, who points the way uh, towards the Holy One of God, towards the ser- uh, the servant of God uh, who will come, who is coming soon. Um, and ultimately we find as Christians uh, for that obviously to be Jesus. And so uh, a great uh, prophet for the season of Advent, a great prophet to sort of whet our appetites as we get ready to um, to enter into the nativity of our Lord and that, that great uh, festival of the Lord's incarnation among us. Yeah. So you, you said the gospel. Uh, I, I slipped up. Sure. You know, let the cat out of the bag. And, and sometimes he is called the fifth evangelist, the four evangelists being Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John, yeah. The writers of the gospels recorded for us in the New Testament. Isaiah sometimes is called the fifth evangelist. I think I've probably slipped up the same way and talked about the gospel according to Isaiah. Why does Isaiah bear that place of prominence in the Old Testament within the church as one whom we consider a writer of the gospel? Right. I mean, of the latter prophets, he is um, uh, the chief. He is the greatest of the prophets. And um, his prophecy, uh, it ultimately points to this one who is to come. It's it's dripping with gospel. And so that's why, uh, again, uh, so prominently uh, he is featured in the season of Advent. Um, we have, uh, of course, um, Isaiah is going to be the one that uh, predicts that... Um, 
that, that prophesies that John the Baptist will come, uh, that voice of one crying in the wilderness to make straight the paths of God, right? Uh, everything uh, about Isaiah, um, you really see it in the Gospels. Uh, so Isaiah is going to be the one who will... Uh, Talk about the one who will be called the Prince of Peace and the Wonderful Counselor, etc. Um, Isaiah is the one who's going to say that a virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. They will call his name Emmanuel. Um, Isaiah is sort of, uh, he's writing Gospels before it was cool, if, if that makes sense to our listeners. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and certainly uh, all of the prophets in the Old Testament preach the Gospel. And we will see other prophets in this series. But in Isaiah, you do see these clearest of pictures. Yeah. For the season of Advent, as you mentioned, also for other times in the church year, we'll see some epiphany-looking texts. Isaiah right. chapter 60 has the coming of the Magi. Right. And then, of course, during the those middle chapters, chapters 40 through 55, we get these, what are often referred to as servant songs, right. the servant of the Lord, which figure, figure very pa- prominently during the Passion season, during the season of Lent, particularly culminating in that picture of Christ crucified and risen in Isaiah 52 and 53. Exactly, yeah. So over and over again, Isaiah gives us these very clear pictures of our Lord Jesus Christ and the coming of the Messiah. He sees it so clearly, not that the others don't, but he just sees it so clearly. He figures very prominently in the season of Advent. And so we're going to meet him several times this is the first text that we're getting. Where where does this occur liturgically, Pastor Beck, in terms of the season of Advent? I know these, these texts are kind of mixed up in this right. series, but they are all drawn from the various lectionaries. How does this one fit in liturgically? Yeah, so this is the Old Testament lesson for the first Sunday in Advent in the three-year lectionary, Series A. That's a mouthful. That is a mouthful, right? Um, And that's actually how you should introduce it whenever you're about to read it in church. You should say, this is the Old Testament lesson for... No, don't say all that. Um, So uh, right now in our churches, um, uh, we have just entered into um, season B or year B uh, of the uh, the three-year lectionary. Um, of course, there's a couple different options as far as lectionaries go. We have the, the one-year lectionary, uh, sometimes called the, the historic lectionary, and then we have the three-year lectionary that hasn't been around quite as long. Uh, but uh, in the three-year lectionary, yeah, we have year A that the Gospels tend to focus on uh, Matthew's Gospel, um, which we, we just came out of uh, a week or so ago. Uh, we have year B that we've just entered into in which most of the Gospels will be Mark, although there are times when John gets interspersed in uh, in all three of the years, uh, especially this year in Mark. Uh, and then we have next year, a year from now, we will be uh, embarking uh, through Luke's account of uh, the Gospel of Jesus. And so uh, everything kind of goes through those Gospels, but then the Old Testament lessons, especially for the festival season of the church year, um, which is Advent through uh, Trinity Sunday uh, in the spring, um, all of those Old Testament lessons are designed, they are chosen, they are appointed uh, for the fact that they speak to the Gospel lesson. They speak to what's going on in the Gospel. And so that's uh, nothing different uh, in today's text. Whenever we are uh, first introduced uh, to the Gospels, um, well, here in uh, in year, uh, excuse me, a year ago in year A, uh, what we would have experienced, what we would have encountered, uh, was we would have had um, Matthew's account of the triumphal entry, right? Um, so we've got Matthew twenty-one one to eleven, 
uh, juxtaposed here with Isaiah 2, uh, which we'll get a chance to talk about in a minute, and then uh, a section from Romans 13 that talks about how we love each other, what it looks like um, to love each other in Christ. Um, I, Pastor Apple, real quick question. We were supposed to talk about this off the air maybe. Uh, do you tend towards Advent 1 being triumphal entry, or do you tend towards Advent 1 being discussion of the end times uh, from Matthew 24, et cetera? I usually use the triumphal entry, okay. the, the Palm Sunday account, right, right? Due to its more historic use within the church. Well, of course, I would expect nothing less. Yeah, yeah. Um, I like the triumphal entry as Advent one, uh, the gospel lesson, because what it essentially does um, is it's sort of like a wake up call to us, right? The last several weeks of the previous church year, uh, we've been winding down. Uh, with a handful of, uh, of parables of our Lord or teachings of our Lord that revolve around the end of time, right? That the end is coming soon. But then all of a sudden, it's time for celebration. All of a sudden, um, Jesus is here, right? Uh, we look to uh, that triumphal entry, that moment when he steps into his city on his hill. Uh, and when he comes, uh, he comes in glory. He comes in majesty. He comes in, uh, in might. Uh, but he comes not like maybe we would expect, Right. Uh, he comes lowly, riding on a donkey on the you know the colt, the foal of a donkey, etc. And so when we see Jesus coming, um, that's kind of a um, a clue to us. That should cause a little flag to go up and say, "Hey, it's Advent. We're getting ready for Jesus to come again." And so we have um, the entire season of Advent is this beautiful, um, almost kind of stacked truth um, that Isaiah looked forward to the Advent, the coming. Of Jesus, right? Um, we now look back upon the coming of Jesus, and we we celebrate that, and we we commemorate it, and we we celebrate it here and now in time and space um, as He comes to us in word and sacrament. Uh, but we also have a hope, uh, the hope of expectation that He is coming again in glory, and so all of that is tied up in the triumphal entry in Isaiah two that we'll talk about in a few minutes, um, and then uh, all of it is just tied up as the the season of Advent continues to build, continues to grow. Um, there's you know this this back and forth of, are we talking about Jesus coming as a baby at Bethlehem? Are we talking about Jesus coming again in glory? And I think the answer is clearly both. Yes. Yeah. And and the thing about the Palm Sunday text for Advent 1 is mm. it does, it jumps out. Right. Liturgically speaking, you, you've just come out of the end of one church year, thinking about his return again in glory, very particularly. And then you start a season of Advent, which means coming. And, and certainly his coming into Jerusalem fits that, but it it's like, well, Pastor, I thought we were getting ready for Christmas. Right. And Christmas is when Jesus is born. What in the world are we doing reading about Jesus when he comes as an adult into Jerusalem? And it all of it, I think, ties everything together in why did he come right. in his incarnation? It's a mini holy week. Right. Right. <laughs> and it, it's pointing us to the the fact that he comes to die. He comes right. to be our savior. And when he comes again in glory, he comes as the one who has died, who right. has been crucified for our sins and, and comes then to take us to our eternal home that he is won by those scars, which he still bears. Yes. It's a very beautiful juxtaposition. And just to, to put a little bit of connection there with Matthew 21 being a gospel reading associated with this text from Isaiah 2, you've got Jesus entering into Jerusalem. We're going to see Jerusalem in this text, talk about the mountain that's there, the house of the Lord, the temple figures very prominently during Holy Week and everything that Jesus does during that week. So we're going to see some of those connections as we look at Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. With no further ado, let's read the text. Oh, yeah. 
the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Old Testament reading for Advent 1 of series A in the three-year lectionary. Very well said. Verse 1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, Amos, A-M-O-Z, not Amos the prophet, Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Did you say anything about Amos, Isaiah's dad earlier? I mean, just that we don't really know who he was. We don't know a whole lot about him. Um, I, I, I did a little bit of reading and, and no, no clear answers came out. Um, I did want to talk uh, before we jump into the text proper, because, you know, a year ago, I'm sure everybody remembers what they were doing a year ago on Advent 1, year A, in the three-year election, right? Right. The Old Testament lesson. Um, a year ago, you probably didn't hear much of the context, uh, much of the, the verses that surround um, Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. Um, and I just want to point this out uh, to our listeners today, that this section here towards the beginning of Isaiah not exactly the happiest part of, of the book, right? Um, just going by the, the subject headings here in my Bible, uh, we have uh, the previous chapter, uh, the last uh, seven or eight verses. Um, the subject heading that the, the editors have added is the unfaithful city, right? Yikes. Yeah, and how the faithful city has become a, I think the next word is not appropriate for radio, um, a woman of ill repute, let, let us say. The faithful city, she who was full of justice, right? Righteousness lodged in her, but now murderers, right? So there's this, this, um, this picture leading into today's text, which is a beautiful text dripping with gospel. This is good news, right? But leading into it, just how broken, how, how bad, how unfaithful, how unrighteous Jerusalem has become. And then we get the same thing right afterwards, right? Uh, it says uh, the next, uh, again, subject heading added by the editors, you know, for the English Standard Version, uh, verse 6 and following, the day of the Lord. Uh, well, you know that the day of the Lord can be a really nice thing, and the day of the Lord can be a really terrible thing. Uh, guess which one it is in this case. Yeah, exactly. Terrible. <laughs> for right. you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, Isaiah says, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures, right? So they're filling themselves with the things that do not satisfy. They're filling themselves with the wealth and the riches of this world instead of with the fear of the Lord, okay? So we've got that kind of sandwiched around our text today, and I think that makes our text even stand out as that much more beautiful, um, the fact that even though Israel, even though Judah, even though Jerusalem uh, keeps uh, breaking the faith— Nevertheless, the Lord will call his people 
uh, from the ends of the earth, we're going to find out, uh, to be his people. So, yeah, I apologize. We can get back to the text now. Well, no, that, that's good. Yeah. And, and as you were talking, that, that reminds me a lot of the scene of Isaiah's call yeah. in Isaiah chapter 6, which you mentioned earlier. And it's a fantastic scene. We, we actually relive it in sorts during the Sanctus yeah. every, every week in Holy Communion. But, but it, it ends normally, at least when we read it in, in worship, the scene often ends where Isaiah hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And a lot of times we stop there. Mm-hmm. But then the Lord says, hey, this is what I'm going to tell you to tell the people. And it's, it's generally not good news. Right. <laughs> Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Isaiah says, how long? And the Lord says, until cities lay waste without inhabitant. And and continuing. Now there is a bit of hope that the whole by the end of that text, Isaiah six thirteen, that the holy seed is its stump. So there's right. the 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 stump of Jesse from which the shoot sprouts forth. I I think we'll pick that up somewhere in this series on Advent with the prophets. I'm sure you'll bring it up again. So that's I mean that's a, a good picture of Isaiah in miniature, where you see both of these things. His, right. his terrible picture of judgment, but also these beautiful pictures of gospel of which we have in our, our text today. Very briefly, I, I, maybe just a, half a moment. <laughs> Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw this word right. of the Lord. He didn't hear it. I don't know. It's, it's just the, the picture there. So he saw, and of course we have this vision in chapter 6. Yep. Any any comments on that? It just struck me as something to talk about. Well, you know, uh, throughout the prophets, there are, there are different ways of... Um, uh, different ways that uh, that the prophets express that the word of the Lord comes to them. I mean, some of them, it is just as simple as the word of the Lord. I mean, I don't even think it says came to them in the Hebrew. It just says the word of the Lord was to, you know, whichever prophet. Um, I, I think there are several prophets that actually get to eat the words of the Lord, um, which is kind of an interesting picture, right? Uh, we have some of the prophets who get to see oracles um, and, and specifically using the word oracle. But yeah, here, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So there is some kind of a vision language going on here. I think that that's, uh, that's very, uh, very appropriate, um, given the fact that Isaiah, like you just pointed out in chapter 6, he's a guy who sees things, right? Um, and so perhaps this is uh, his particular um, his particular mode of, uh, or God's mode of communication to Isaiah is, Isaiah, you're going to see some stuff. Okay. Yeah, but that's an interesting point. Well, and so and so here he sees this mountain, people going to it, and it's just we should have a picture in our minds. It's very visual. Yeah, yeah. We should our imaginations should be active as we see this in our minds. Right. So, do you see what I'm saying? That's right. Good question for radio. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So his vision, beginning in verse two. It's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Again, as you said, southern kingdom primarily is what we're talking about here with the prophet Isaiah. It shall come to pass in the latter days. So let's stop right there. Latter days. When are these latter days? How, I mean, 100 years, 700 years? When is Isaiah talking about? Right. So, I mean, ultimately he's talking about when Jesus comes again in glory, right? He's talking about the final advent. Um, I do, and I, I... I mean, I'd I'd be curious your take on this. Is that 
um, we do have something that, that's kind of, uh, I, I believe we call it proleptic eschatology, the idea that, um, that a prophecy can be fulfilled um, many times or several times over the course of history and that each time that it is fulfilled, it is fulfilled in a greater way, right? And so, I mean, you could look to the fact that, um, yeah, when Jesus uh, goes onto the mount or the hill of Calvary, that there is a lifted up place that is very prominent. I mean, it, it may have just been a small molehill. It may have been nothing nothing great or nothing uh, important, but in terms of its significance, all of human history, all of creation's history revolves around that central moment in time when Jesus is hanging on the cross. So also I think that uh, we, especially as Lutheran Christians, would point to the fact that um, climbing that hill that you and I, Pastor, uh, climb each and every Sunday as we walk the steps up the chancel uh, to the altar, to the place where the body and blood of Christ is present, I mean, uh, I don't know about you, but I, I don't know if it gets any better than that. I, don't, I mean, there is, a, um, there is something of the end that is sort of, brought back to us here in time and space. Um, and so I see a little bit of that here uh, each and every Sunday. Uh, but then ultimately, of course, this is talking about the end of time. This is talking about uh, when Jesus comes in glory, and that is the final and the full uh, fulfillment uh, of this latter days prophecy. Right. So yeah, the latter days, the end times, it's like God does some time travels, maybe a, a bit too familiar of a term. Let's just say that he's eternal. He exists outside right. of time. And he he brings the end of time to us before it happens. Yeah. Ahead of time. Right. So I mean that's I think a that's foretaste of the feast to come. Right. And I think that's one way to look at wh- what happens to Jesus in in everything that happens to him as you said on on Calvary and then I mean the whole crucifixion resurrection ascension we put them together as one big event. Right. That's like the end times coming ahead of time to Jesus right. and happening to Jesus. And then those same things happen to us as we are connected to him in holy baptism, in the sacrament of the altar. Right. God God takes these end time events and, and brings them to us ahead of time so that when we do face the last day, when we talk about judgment in a little bit from this text, we already know what the judgment is because God's rendered it already. He's rendered that judgment upon his son, and in him we receive that same judgment of now forgiven, holy, righteous, because of him. You know, there's a, um, there's a prayer that comes to mind um, in, in this regard, and I'm trying to, trying to find it right quick. Yeah, here it is. So um, at the end, uh, or towards the end of the, uh, the service of Compline, service uh, for the close of day. We have this, uh, this prayer uh, that can be prayed that I think is just wonderful. It says, Abide with us, Lord, for it is toward evening. The day is far spent. Abide with us and with your whole church. Abide with us at the end of the day, at the end of our life, at the end of the world. Abide with us with your, good, uh, with your grace and goodness, with your holy word and sacrament, with your strength and blessing. Abide with us when the night of affliction and temptation comes upon us, the night of fear and despair, the night when death draws near. Abide with us and with all the faithful now and forever. Amen. So that that idea of the sort of folding over of time such that um, we pray every night that God would abide with us, that he would remain with us, that he would stay with us, that he would comfort us. But we also make that same prayer at the end of our life, um, and you better believe we make that same prayer at the end of the world, right? So all of those kind of 
those ends, those endings, they tie together in the in the love that God has for us. Which, which all that is to say, when we think about this text, and we see, okay, well, what is Isaiah seeing, or when is he seeing? Yeah, we're going to point to different things. All of it, I think, being centered in what our Lord does by his death and his resurrection. Right. But we're also going to be seeing things that are true, say, of the church today, as you've already pointed out, and things that are true of the last day as well, that we are in the latter days because of what our Lord has done. And so what right. Isaiah saw is true at this moment. We're going to see how these things are actually happening in the church still today, Right. these latter days. Go ahead. But, no, I was just thinking, you know, in terms of uh, kind of our, our field of vision and our focal point, our focal length in terms of vision, because, I mean, I think, I mean, and feel free to push back on this, obviously, but I think that Isaiah sees his day. You said we've seen because of what Jesus has done, right? I I understand what you're saying temporally, but, I mean, you know, Moses and Elijah get a chance to hang out with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's right. Um, Why wouldn't we say that Moses saw Jesus's day? Right. Right. Abraham saw him and rejoiced. Right, right. right. Well, you, you know, John, John twelve forty one, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. And spoke of him. I, I had forgotten that. But you're right. This is this is Isaiah seeing what we have seen in, right. in a different. I mean, you know, what does Jesus say to his apostles? Blessed are your eyes that have have seen, seen these that. things that others longed to see and, and ears that heard the things that others longed to hear. And I think Isaiah is included in that, but but he gets that foretaste. Yeah. He knows what's coming. Isaiah is a he's a Christian. He believes in Jesus. <laughs> Just like you and I do. He believed in Jesus looking forward. We believe in Jesus looking backward and also forward to his return in, again in glory. Right. We're we're united in this Christian faith with this prophet Isaiah during the season of Advent particularly. And and that's, I mean, you know, Isaiah was looking forward. We're looking forward. The, the themes just come together so nicely here in this text. So we're going to go ahead and take our break, Pastor Beck, before we pick up another topic. Sounds good. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's December 1st. We're looking at Isaiah 2, verses 1 through 5, with Pastor Dustin Beck of Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas. Pastor Beck, prior to the break, we were talking about the latter days, which Isaiah sees. And now, now we're going to talk about, well, this mountain. What is he seeing in these latter days? The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And and the picture is that nations are going to be flowing to it. To take us into this picture. What's Isaiah seeing? There's so much here. Right. So Isaiah and I have a lot in common because I prefer mountains over beaches. 
And apparently that's what Isaiah is into as well. Apparently. I don't know if that's what the text is about. Um, yeah, so we have this this image of a mountain, and I can tell you from my limited experience of hiking and, and, and backpacking and things like that, um, that, generally speaking, folks don't flow to mountains. They don't flow up mountains. They don't go towards mountains. Um, generally speaking, it's easier to go away from them. That's why water, not surprisingly, runs downhill all the time. Um, so this idea that there is a mountain that's going to be set up, right? What's the idea of a mountain? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a high, tall place um, where, you know, there's a, a good vantage, right? Uh, the stuff that's on top of mountains gets noticed. And so um, this is the place uh, that God is setting up his, uh, his house. This is the place that, uh, right, the, uh, the mountain of the house of the Lord um, that that idea of Zion itself, that idea of the place where the temple is, um, which is, as I understand it, I have not been to the Holy Land. As I understand it, not that big of a mountain, right? Um, that on the on the last day, in the latter days, that'll be the highest of the mountains. That'll be um, even higher than uh, than say you know uh, Mount Hebron or you know uh, Mount Sinai, right? A uh, very important place in the the history of the people of Israel. But now there's a new mountain uh, that will uh, that will be lifted up, a new mountain that will be uh, God's dwelling place for the peoples. Um, but I also want to pay a very close attention here that um, as this is lifted up above the hills and above all the um, all the other mountains, um, notice there who exactly it is that is flowing towards this mountain. It's not just and all of Israel. It's not just all of Judea will flow towards it. Um, no, it's all the nations will flow to it. And I think, again, in terms of the context of this, uh, this uh, small section of Isaiah's prophecy, uh, we have sandwiching on either side of it the fact that God's own people, um, they didn't want a lot to do with God, unfortunately. Uh, they wanted to go their own way. They wanted to make, make a name for themselves. They wanted a king like the other nations, etc., so on and so forth. Um, and so when, uh, when people reject God, uh, well, it turns out that the plan has always been for God to leave the door wide open for anybody and for everybody. Uh, that's one of the things that I love about the book of Isaiah especially, is that there is very much a, um, a missional aspect to Isaiah. The fact that, uh, that God's mercy, his love, his, his favor, it extends beyond just a, a particular tribe of people or a particular family. Um, and so we see that right here when all the nations will flow towards that mountain when everyone will be drawn towards it, right? This is this is a powerful, uh, powerful image for us Christians. Right, and again, just the, the picture of the mountain, as you said, not the highest mountain that there is in the region, but the picture of it being lifted up. Right. The, the, I mean, so when you look up, or I'm reminded of Psalm 121, when I lift up my eyes to the hills. So where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. There's the mountain of the Lord gets lifted up. So that is what I see. It, it becomes this magnet, which begins to draw all peoples, because that's where the Lord is. That's where the Lord is dwelling. And as you said, it is for all peoples. The Lord always had in mind, through the family of Abraham, to bless all the families of the world. Go back to Genesis chapter 12. Right. Or, or as, as you were saying, even there at the Lord's house, the temple that is there on Mount Zion, think of Solomon's prayer of dedication back in 1 Kings chapter 8. He talks about this being a house of prayer for other nations as well, that the Lord would draw others to the truth, that he is the one true God. 
And, and we're seeing this with Isaiah here in Isaiah chapter 2. As this mountain gets lifted up, it becomes the most important mountain, more important than other mountains in the scriptures. There's tons of other ones, as you said. Mount Sinai was a really big one, and I think there's connections that we could make there. Because we're going to talk about the law of the Lord, which is certainly associated with Mount Zion. But this mountain that Isaiah sees is going to be even more important than Mount Sinai. Go ahead, Pastor Beck. Oh, I was I was just going to add um, also that, I mean, this is um, in Revelation 21, mm-hmm. when John gets a chance to see the, the new city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, right? Um, the text uh, 21.10 says um, that he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down from uh, uh, out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel. So there is this idea, um, again, that, uh, and, and especially in the book of Revelation, which is a very visual book, you know, right. just like just like Isaiah, we have this this visual image of something that, um, uh, you know, Pastor Apple, I don't know if you've spent a lot of time in the mountains, um, but one of the things that I always love is. Um, there's a, a little town when we used to go uh, camping and, and backpacking and things like that in Colorado. Um, there's a little town called Monte Vista. Mountain View. Mountain View. Yeah. And so you're driving and you're in the plains and everything like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, we always stopped in Monte Vista to, to, to fill up the, the car with gas. But off in the distance, you can see those mountains. And when you see those mountains, you know, I mean, you are almost there. You are you are getting into, I mean, foothills at this point. But you can see the mountains in front of you, and they're just something that captures our, our attention and our imagination. And it is uh, it is something that uh, can, can can certainly draw you in, right? So, Yeah, I mean, so what what mountain are we talking about here as, as we think about? I mean, there are, there are not nations flowing to that mountain that's there in Jerusalem right now. Not, not in this sense. Correct. So, so what mountain or mountains are, are we talking about? What is Isaiah seeing here? You've mentioned Revelation, and we've talked about the latter days. I, I go back to, to John chapter 12 again, which is where John writes that Isaiah saw this glory. Yeah. And Jesus there talks about how he will be lifted up right. and will draw all people to himself. Exactly. Which is, I mean, this is the language that's, that's what he's talking about. used right here. Yeah. And, and I think, too, then, the fulfillment that exists within the Christian church today. When you think about the, the nations, and again, to use the book of Revelation, the picture that John sees in Revelation 7 of all the nations being gathered together clothed in white robes, that I mean, this is what Isaiah saw. Yeah. And, and we're living in it now, which is, I mean, that's just a fantastic thing to think about. Isn't that even, great? even as we wait for further fulfillment. This is fantastic. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. It's like Advent matters. That's right. Yes. Make Advent great again. It yes. never wasn't great. It right? never wasn't great. That's right. We're, it's always we're been big great. fans. Yeah. Yeah. So come let us go to the mountain of the Lord. This is what the nations are saying. To the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law. So there's I mean, there's a back and forth. There's a there's a to and fro to this picture. You've got nations flowing to this mountain that's been lifted up because something's coming out of it. Right, exactly. And and so what, what does the text say? Out of Zion shall go the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. We, we hear that word law sometimes, Pastor Beck, and I think as Lutherans we automatically think God's commands, and, and we have maybe a negative picture. I don't think that's what Isaiah has in mind. Yeah, here. I don't think that's exactly what's going on here, right? Uh, so uh, when we're talking about the law, 
of course, uh, the word uh, from the Hebrew that's that's there is the Torah, right? Um, and the Torah, uh, which I, I love this. Um, so I think I've, I've mentioned uh, before on, on the radio program that I, I teach New Testament at Faith Lutheran High School of Central Texas. That's right. Uh, to a handful of uh, freshmen and sophomores. Shout out to my, my folks. Yeah, good people, right? But one of the things we do every uh, day at the beginning of class is we have just a brief devotion, right? Um, and so for a series of days, we went through Psalm 119. That's a long psalm. It's a long psalm. That's why it took a series of days. Um, and each and every little little section of Psalm 119 um, is a reflection on loving the law of God. And we had to kind of unpack that beforehand uh, because when we say we love the law of God, we're not talking about law necessarily as juxtaposed with gospel uh, or as contrasted with gospel. We're talking about the law of God in so far as that is the Torah of God, uh, which of course the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. Yeah, there's a bunch of laws and rules and regulations and stipulations and, and, and all those kinds of things in it. But the larger context of what goes on in the first five books of the Old Testament um, is that God loves his people. Over and over again in history, he he actually loves his people. He actually intervenes. He he breaks into his creation. We talked earlier about God being eternal, right? The fact that he is outside of time, but he he subjugates himself. He puts himself. He invades time for our benefit, right? And this is, uh, of course, no better found uh, than in the incarnation of Jesus, which is what all of this is winding up towards. This is the point of Advent. Uh, But so when we look at the law of God, when we look at the Torah, we're talking about the same God um, who wouldn't leave Adam and Eve alone in the garden in their sin, but instead he walked in the cool of the morning to come and ultimately to clothe them, to cover their shame and to forgive them, right? We're talking about the same God um, who who came to Abraham and said, you know what, leave behind your father's house and his gods and instead come and listen to my voice and I'll make you a great nation. Um, we're talking about the same God who with a mighty outstretched arm saves his people Israel who are in bondage in Egypt. Um, this is the God um, whose law, whose word um, we want to be taught Right? We want to know these things so that we too can rejoice in them. So as we draw closer to the Mount of Zion, the, the, this tall mountain, as we draw near to it, um, what is the point of drawing near to it? So that we can learn uh, God's ways among us his ways of salvation, so that we can walk in his paths. I mean, my goodness, this is the idea that we would walk as he would have us to walk, that our will would be formed by his will, um, that that we would learn to love others, that we would learn to, to lay down our lives for others so that his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven already. That's a such a, a fantastic picture, and I appreciate the walk through the Old Testament that you gave us there. God comes to us. There, there's that incarnational language here that we shouldn't miss. We have that picture of the peoples flowing to the mountain. Look, they're all going to the mountain. Well, why? Because God has come to them. Yeah. He's coming to them in his word. You know, the, the law, the fullness of, of his revelation in the Old Testament, that's what's going out from Zion. And then the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I mean, I even want to tie that to the Gospel of John again. The word became flesh. Right. And dwelt among us. That again, we see this happening very fully in Jesus. And and then it started in Jerusalem. I mean, think historically here. It started in Jerusalem, but to to riff off of the the University of Texas, what starts in Jerusalem changes the world. What what starts here changes the world. That's the University of Texas's motto. It, you can hear it on commercials. I'll allow it. Okay. But what starts in Jerusalem changes the world. 
historically speaking. Sure. Acts chapter one, verse eight. Think of think of what Jesus told his apostles before he ascended into heaven, that that it's gonna start here in Jerusalem, it's gonna go to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. And and Isaiah is seeing that already here in Isaiah chapter two. The Lord coming to his people and then drawing them to himself, this this back and forth, that it is the word of the Lord that draws the people to him, and it's still happening in the church today as the word sounds forth from pulpits, as, as people are baptized, as the body and blood of Jesus is received. This is the Lord drawing his people to himself at this mountain, at the place where, where he dwells. So verse 4, Pastor Beck, and feel free to come back to any of that if I've skipped over something. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. Here we've got judgment talk, deciding talk. Before we get into the swords and plowshares and spears and pruning hooks, <laughs> take us a little bit into that judgment talk that's happening here. What What's in, what's in view? Right. So uh, the idea of a judge um, in especially in the Old Testament context, a judge is just a, a leader, a ruler, right? Somebody who um, who decides uh, the way that things ought to be, and um, so that's I mean why we have the book of Judges. When uh, there, in those days there was no king, so everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Um, I think you guys just recently studied the book of Judges. We did. Yeah, yeah, good stuff, right? So um, when he comes to be judge, um, he will be the rightful judge. You know, that was kind of, that was lurking behind the scenes in the entire book of Judges is, you know, it keeps saying in those days, there was no king. There was a king. God is your king, right? He's the one that's supposed to be calling the shots. He's the one that's supposed to be, you know, it's his way or the highway. He's the one whose will matters, right? And so in this day, in this latter day, when this mountain is there and the people are drawing near to it, right? He will once and for all be the judge, he will be the one who decides uh, what is right and what is wrong, and it doesn't matter how you or how I feel about it. Um, and so there is um, there is some comfort in that, the fact that, um, as I often tell my confirmation students, right, um, that uh, the life of the Christian is about learning that God is God and that we are not, right? Um, and that's something that I can say real quick, and you can memorize it right now, uh, but you'll also spend the rest of your life actually learning to believe that God really truly is God and that you actually are not God. You are instead a member of a part of his creation. Um, and so what does that look like? Right. So we'll, we'll spend a lot of time, um, coming to grips with the fact that God is God and that his will is done and that he gets his way. Um, but in the eschaton in the end of times in the last day, um, I think we'll be okay with it. I think that's what this text says, is that when he comes um, as the righteous judge of all of creation, we will say, amen, thanks be to God. We, we will say, hallelujah, praise the Lord, right? Does it get any better than this? I don't think so. Yeah. Right, and, and for the people of Israel at the time, there is an element of judgment, condemnation judgment right. that comes here, lest they look forward to that sort of judgment with a false sense of security right. or a false hope without true faith in the Lord, in the one who is coming to them with his word that they might believe it unto their salvation. But for us as, as Christians, this is a this is a, a hope of ours, is that the Lord would come in judgment and set things right, set things as they ought to be yeah. without the attacks of, of sin and evil upon us. Uh, we're seeing a, a picture of, of what is coming on the last day. I was just recently teaching the seventh petition of the Lord's Prayer to my youth confirmation class, Deliver Us From Evil. And we talked about how in this life, the deliverance from evil that we have doesn't mean that there is no evil that attacks us. It means that God, by his grace, sustains us through that evil. 
but the day is coming when he will put an end to that sin and evil for all time. And, and we will, I mean, I think that's what Isaiah is is seeing ahead here. So we've got something that has come to fruition in what Jesus has done, and yet we're waiting for the fullness of it when he returns again in glory. It's both, yeah. Yeah, and the Lord's prayer is absolutely that. The Lord's prayer is a prayer for right now and a prayer for eternity. You know, for that, uh, for the here and now and the there and then, if that makes sense. Sure, sure. Yeah. And I mean, Luther even gives that in the explanation to the second petition that we would lead godly lives here in time and right. there in eternity. Yeah. Right. So for here and now and there and then. Now the the picture we we've got this mountain that's been lifted up. We've got people streaming to it. The word of God flowing forth from it, and then Isaiah gives us a different picture. Or, or he, he lets us see a different facet of this picture. He talks about people beating swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, which means then that nations are not going to be fighting. They're not going to even be training for war anymore. What's, what is this picture that Isaiah is painting for us? I mean, he's painting a picture for us of uh, the day when sin is undone, right? Uh, because if you don't have sin, you don't have terrible things like Cain and Abel, Right. You don't have nations rising up against other nations. You don't have, um, uh, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots. You don't have political ideology. Um, you don't have any of the things that come between groups of people. And instead, all that you have is God gets to be the king, and we get to be his creation, right? Um, and, you know, I, I pray for that day every <laughs> every morning and every night, um, and sometimes twice a day, you know, during, during the middle of the day. Yeah, um, this, is, this is what our ultimate hope is. This is what our ultimate uh, goal should be um, is, you know, how does, how does John end the book of Revelation that we just talked about? You know, behold, he, he says, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Yeah. Right? Um, here we go. Jesus, if you come back, when you come back, right, when you come back, um, everything will be okay. Everything will be better than okay. It'll be just fine. It'll be dandy. It'll be wonderful. It'll be stupendous, excellent stuff. So we want that to happen. We want there to be an end to violence, an end to hatred, an end to discord, an end to strife, um, and, and, and ultimately an end to sin and death. That's what is coming, and that's the day that Isaiah is seeing right here um, in his vision of the mountaintop. I'm glad you brought up Cain and Abel because I think that fits perfectly. You've got you've got Cain who turns his plowshare into a sword, who turns his pruning hook into a spear right. against his own brother, and Isaiah sees the reversal of that, in, in which brother does not rise up against brother to kill him, but instead they they live together in in peace. Just a, a brief thought on this verse, Pastor Beck. Yeah, is I, I know that there are some Christians who would call for pacifism. For a, from a verse like this. Yeah. Isaiah sees a day in which weapons are not used against each other. In this time in which we live, in which sin does still rear its ugly head, in which the devil still does prowl around like a roaring lion, how, how, do, we, how do we as Christians take this verse when it comes to, say, war, violence in this life? Right. I think that that's a that's a question that uh, that many of us do have to wrestle with, and I I do um, I, I don't know if this is a popular opinion or not, but uh, you know I'm I'm okay with somebody if they want to err on the side of pacifism, right? If somebody says you know that they're uh, in order to be consistent, um, you know, and they they don't really 
I don't know, some people don't look at things like Romans 13, you know, that God has given the sword to the, the emperor, and they'll say, you know, in order to be consistent with you shall not kill, you know, um, I'm even against the death penalty, right? Um, I applaud their consistency in that regard. Um, I think this is an issue that, uh, that this is one of those uh, issues in theology when I think I can say this fairly, your mileage may vary, right? Um, and, and this is, uh, I don't think there's, you know, you're more pious if you fall down on one side of the of the argument, or or, or less pious if you fall down on the other. Um, essentially, here this is uh, um, one of those places where uh, we have the opportunity uh, to uh, to let our convictions and our conscience guide us here, and uh, the Lord will sort it out in the eschaton. Uh, we pray, uh, but the the idea here that um, that we should, you know become full-blown pacifists and just allow, you know, anybody who hates us to do anything terrible. And Jesus speaks that way a little bit, right? Um, but at the same time, you know, we have commands from God that say that we are to preserve life, that we are to protect those that are around us. Um, and so, again, this is one of those things that um, I don't think I can give just a straight one way or the other answer, but I would say um, this is an opportunity that every Christian gets to wrestle with the scriptures, wrestle with God's word and with your own conscience um, and come out on the other side of the day. Um, and the best advice that I could probably give is no matter where you come out on the, uh, uh, in terms of it, uh, confess it to Jesus, uh, ask for forgiveness because you probably got it wrong somewhere along the way. Um, and he is gracious and merciful. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will forgive you. Uh, so I think that's it's, it's kind of where I come down on it. Yeah, I mean, repentance is always a good choice yeah. for the Christian, that, that as we wrestle with these things, as we consider a verse like this, or what Jesus says about turning the other cheek in Matthew right. chapter 5, but what we also then consider what he says concerning the role that fathers have in protecting their children, or the role that governments have in protecting their citizens, exactly. and taking those seriously as well. The, the best way to live that out in this life, which is still marred by sin, in which evil is still attacking, and Isaiah's vision here has not been fully realized, yeah. that, that is a matter of wrestling with the Word of God according to the Christian conscience, always in repentance. And we, we Christians live with one foot here in time and one foot there in eternity, and that's a, sometimes that's a little uneven ground. Sometimes we, uh, we pine for and we long for um, that last day to come. We should always... Yes. Be, uh, be, you know, it's, 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 in fact, that's something that we should confess when we are not, um, looking forward to that. We're saying, Hey, you know, things are pretty good right now. Um, but there are times, uh, when there's uneven footing, if that makes sense, uh, between where we are right now and where we know we will be when Jesus comes again. Um, so just, you know, knowing that calling it what it is, confessing it and receiving forgiveness, uh, never a bad, never a bad plan. Isaiah concludes our text for today with verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I think this verse really helps to draw together some of the things you were saying earlier. The picture here that Isaiah sees is all the nations. We know that the house of Jacob at this time isn't always doing this. And so Isaiah makes use of this picture to call the Lord's people back to him, right? to walk in the light of the Lord. I mean, it's, it's almost kind of like a, um, he uses this as an object lesson. Right. Um, he says, you know, if this is the way that the, um, you know, the pagans, if this is the way that the nations, all the other peoples um, are, are, are going to feel, then come on, Jacob, Israel, our people. Right. Um, you who have 
you know, what's the long laundry list? The You've got the prophecies, you've got the worship, you've got the sacrificial system, you've got the bloodline of the Messiah flowing right through your veins, right? You guys, come on, let's walk in the light of the Lord. You know, these guys, have they've, you know, stumbling around in the darkness of, of being, you know, a pagan idolater, they have found this mountain, or, or at least on the last day, on the, in the latter days, they will find this mountain. So you guys right here and right now who have the light, you guys who are, who are basking in the light and preferring darkness, right, putting on your shades and everything, you guys, come on, let's walk in the light of the Lord because the light of the Lord um, is, is, is the wisdom, it's the shining uh, um, face of Jesus um, that we ultimately see uh, in this Advent and in the nativity season of our Lord. Um, that's where all of, all of these texts are going. That's where everything is pointing forward for us. Um, is that we too, um, who sometimes are sheep who love to stray, that we would be sort of jostled a little bit. I always found it weird when I was uh, when I was younger that Advent is a season of semi penitence, not quite a Lent, right. but it's it's a season of penitence. Um, because, you know, sometimes we need to be roused from our slumber. It's been a, a long six months of the season after Pentecost. Now it's time to wake up because Jesus is coming, yeah. right? Um, and so there is kind of this uh, this admonition for us built into the last verse of this text as well. Um, oh, house of Christians. Oh, you who uh, who sometimes take for granted the good stuff that Jesus has done and, and is continuing to do and will bring to f- completion and fruition on the last day. Um, let us walk in the light of the Lord right now. So there is um, a huge, in terms of walking in, uh, back a couple of verses, in terms of walking in his paths, watching the law of the Lord and the word of the Lord come out, right? When we talk about deciding disputes and everything else, there is this idea of sort of an act of righteousness um, that God invites us to be a part of walking in the light. God invites us to be a part of his, um, his new command that Jesus gives in John 13, that we would love each other. Right, and so that is what we are to occupy ourselves with um, until He comes. That we would uh, bask in the light of the Lord um, until that day when we see that mountaintop, and until that day when we see Jesus face to face. Come, Lord Jesus! Indeed, come quickly. Pastor Dustin Beck is the pastor at Holy Cross Lutheran Church in Warda, Texas, helping us this morning with Isaiah two verses one through five. Pastor Beck, thanks for being with us this morning. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the invitation, the call to you and to me to hear the Lord's word coming forth from his church and to be drawn to him, to Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended, and returning for you and for me. Walk in the light. He is coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.